Electricast. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save $1 each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest Alina Boyd to the show today. Alina is the founder and director of Changemaker Institute and the co-founder of Mindsura Incorporated. She's also a Stanford Law graduate with a PhD in copyright law and history. Her career path took her to Multimedia Development Corporation as a senior executive, advising the Malaysian government on cyber law and intellectual property matters. She's also worked as a research assistant at Stanford Law and now is a tenured law professor at Mississippi College School of Law. It's a great pleasure. I welcome Alina to the show. Welcome to the show, Alina. Thank you, Jason. It's a delight to be here. I love when I have the opportunity of talking to someone like yourself before we even start recording, just like introducing ourselves and talking to each other. And I feel like we just already had such a great conversation. I wish we had recorded it. But what I really enjoy about meeting you today, because we just met for the first time, really, for the most part, is having the opportunity of sharing your experience with my audience. Because for me, I love the idea that we're a melting pot as a country, that we are from somewhere else, that we all came to the United States in our own way. Like I'm Sicilian, my, my dad's side is from Sicily, Italy. My grandmother was from the Central Europe, Hungary and, and Czech. And my, my mom's side was Russian and it's a mix, you know? And I believe that anytime our show can show that and, and, and describe the experience, good and bad, all the sides of it, mm-hmm. I think that's an advantage even. And, and there is a spiritual element to this stuff because I think spiritually we're all spiritual beings. And how we have to acclimate and change in our life and deal with those changes. It, it talks about a lot on a lot of deep levels. I appreciate you and I talking before we got on the show today and your willingness to do that. And that just kind of came as a natural response to our conversation with each other. And the beauty of this show is we could take those moments, recreate part of it, but still go real with the rest of it. And that's what I'm really excited about today. And I wanted to ask you if you could share your experience because you have a, a very wealth of knowledge and uh, absolutely, Jason. Yeah, so you just you say we just met, but I feel like I've known you forever. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, I think it's the the spirituality that binds 
each one of us is people, right? And that's how we make up what is a collective humanity. And I love the, the, the thing you mentioned about the United States being like a melting pot. And there are people of all different races, religion, background, cultural orientation coming together and trying to make the country better. For me, I'm, I'm now American. So now I, I am a U.S. citizen. But I love that. I did. Congratulations. Thank you. But I did grow up in Malaysia and I spent my formative years and um, I actually left Malaysia only when I was 20. And I left Malaysia because I got a scholarship to go to England to do an LLM. And I know you, you have an LLM as well. Yes, from Georgetown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, cool. right? I, I read that. Uh, I, went, I left Malaysia when I was 20 to do the LLM in England, in Cambridge. And then I graduated and I went back to Malaysia. And then uh, I had a really, a really close mentor who encouraged me to apply for the Fulbright Scholarship. And I did. I didn't think I would get it, but I did get it. And I ended up at Stanford where I, as you mentioned earlier, where I did my PhD in copyright law and history. And from there, I had, I also had really good mentors who, who kind of pushed me towards academia. And I'm not sure whether I would end up in academia if it wasn't, if it wasn't for my mentors, but um, I ended up looking for a tenure track position. And then I got this job in Mississippi. You know, to cut the long story short, it was a, it was there was a long process of getting a, a tenure track position in law schools in the U.S. Where, What's that like? Because yeah. I have, I'm going to ask you for two reasons. One, I think it'd be great for our audience to understand that, and two, yeah. I'm personally curious because, as you know, when you get an LLM, I got it very yeah. early in my legal career. I was like 24 years old with mine. Mm-hmm. One of the things you could do with an LLM is potentially become a law professor. And yeah. I always joke to myself, my mom would say to me, if you ever get bored of being a lawyer, why don't you go become a law professor? And I was like, that's probably something that take a lot of work mm-hmm. for me. Just to, but I'd be curious if you could share that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there is the, I guess it's like the overarching organization that looks over all, is it 152 law schools in the United States? At the Association of American Law Schools, they're kind of like the the bar, the American Bar Association, but this is for the one that checks on law schools and make sure that they, all the credentials are there and all that. And they organize an annual law recruiting, you know, law professor recruiting faculty conference. And it's held every year in uh, in Washington, D.C., in the Marriott in Washington, D.C. And it really is a speed dating type of environment where every law school will have its own suite. And the candidates who are looking for a law position would fill out a form and the law schools who are interested in the candidates would go to the, would, would invite the candidates to come to the to the suite and have like a 30 minute interview. It's just 30 minutes. And then you run off to the next interview. And then once a, a law school decides that you might be a good fit, then they invite you to a, a callback interview in the law school in the, the state, you know, where, where they are physically located. And you go there and then you do what is called a job talk where you present your research. Um, and the faculty then sits around and questions you about your research and try they try to put holes in your in your in your, in your research methodology. You know you, you didn't consider this the scholar and you know why is your why is your methodology this way? Why didn't you consider you know a, a different school of thought? So they they do that, and then I guess if you pass the job talk and the faculty is sufficiently happy with with you, <laughs> then they give you an offer. So you know what it sounds so, like. 
I just had yeah. to tell you and this, I never talk about my college years, but when I was at the University of Tampa, I was in a fraternity. Mm-hmm. It's not like when you get bitten by your fraternity <laughs> where you go through these, these and- meetings and they like give you like feedback and then they, mm-hmm. they bring you along for the second part of the process and then the, yeah. part of the process. And then you made it in and you get your letters like over yeah. time. It sounds, I mean, the methodologies, I don't mean. It, it, right. Maybe they, they, that's the, that's the model they're working with. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of, kind of humorous as you were describing that. Yeah. But, so you went through that process mm-hmm. and you, what was the, the ch- most greatest challenge you had experienced with that process for you personally? Uh, I think for me personally was not being in the U.S. physically when I went through the process. I was actually in Malaysia. And so I, I flew in to Washington, you know, and and with jet lag and everything that was that was difficult. And then from there, running to the interviews with they were mostly back to back because you had 30 minutes interview and you would go from one 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 interviewing suite to another and you have to quickly readjust you know, who is this school? Who am I talking to? Who are the people on the, the committee that, that are- How do you get to know the panel? Like, how do you get yeah, to know yeah. the people through the process? Like, usually you're supposed yeah. to get to know the people a little better. Exactly, get- right. So you would go on the website, on the, on the law school's website, and you would they would tell you in advance who, who would be interviewing you. So you would go on the website and you would look at their profiles, where their research interests, you know, where, where, where were they doing their, you know, what, what was their research focus? Because that- Knowing that you can kind of anticipate the questions they would ask, right? So someone whose focus is on racial justice is going to approach the the, the questions from a different perspective than someone who was, let's just say, a law and economics person, right? Yeah. And so, so knowing their profiles would be is important in get getting through the interview. So it was that was difficult, like like readjusting really quick. You know, I would I would fly in the day before the interview and then. And then go through the interviews. The interviews were two days, and then after that, fly back because I was actually working in, in the multimedia development corporation at that time. A lot. Yeah. yeah so yeah. So it, that was the most challenging thing, and 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 I think with with a lot of things that we do, like like when you practice law, you have to be in the right frame of mind to actually answer the questions. Yeah. So, so that was difficult. That was the most challenging part, I think. What was the, the greatest reward for you? I guess, obviously, you're at your greatest reward right now. You're tenured. So I guess what I would ask you is, from that point, when you went through the interview process, how long did it take you to find out where you'd wind up in Mississippi? Really quick. So the the interview ended on a Friday. By Monday, I got a, I got a call back to come back, to come to Mississippi. And and by November, so this the, the interviews were in October, and before Thanksgiving, I had come back, given my job talk, met the faculty, and then gotten my offer by Thanksgiving that year. So it was quite quick. Wow. Yeah. Either just before Thanksgiving, I'm, I'm trying to remember, either just before Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving. But I remember it was Thanksgiving was kind of like the, the time that I, I got the, the news. I guess you got the news and you must have been so excited because you have your first position and opportunity. And yeah. I shared with you before we started our interview that I actually look at Mississippi the same way for myself because as a lawyer, early in my career, I was a baby lawyer still when Katrina hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I had the opportunity to go up there, become an attorney and stay there for five years, basically. And so Mississippi presented a lot of opportunity for me on a personal level for my law firm and for myself. But I know it's a definitely a different part of the country compared to California, for example, or Florida, for example, yeah. from Tampa, where I'm from. And I want to ask you, what was your experience like when you got to Mississippi? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe all the prior expectations of what you thought it would be like compared yeah. to what. So, so there's actually quite a funny story, Jason, that I, I didn't tell you earlier. So when I, I came back for the callback, the school put me up in this in this beautiful bed and breakfast, like this really high end, beautiful, you know, bed and breakfast that in the morning they served you warm cheese grits with shrimp. You know, it was it was grits. beautiful. Yeah, grits. Love the grits. Yeah, yeah. I know. yeah. <laughs> right. And it was like a huge room with a huge bed, king bed, and it was it was it was like the the epitome of of southern southern hospitality. It was beautiful. Mississippi is this just so our audience knows? Where in Mississippi is this located? So that our audience in, in Jackson, Jackson. Jackson thought, yeah. the, you can look it up. It's called the Fairview Inn. F A I R V I E W. Fairview Inn. And it was the most beautiful in I mean hotel that I've I've ever been in. You know, it was it was yeah the epitome of southern hospitality, and so that was my impression of Mississippi because I you know coming from Malaysia and then to California, you know I I kind of knew the the two coasts well the east coast and the west coast but everything in between you know I didn't have much experience so when I interviewed with Mississippi I you know the faculty seemed nice they they put me up in this really beautiful hotel and then when I came for the interview we you know we went for dinner at the the really the nicest restaurants in the Jackson area so I, that was my impression of Mississippi oh it's so beautiful you know and then when I accepted the job and I came to when I actually started the job um, then I realized that Mississippi had a lot of a lot of its own uh, issues with with equality and justice a lot of the the worldviews of uh, you know, a lot of community communities in Mississippi were quite entrenched. That a lot of the systems that were built in place, I guess, were not open enough to different cultures and um, different experiences. And so, I actually, when I came to Mississippi as an Asian Asian woman, you know, and I'm I'm not very tall. I'm I'm five feet two at most, with heels maybe five feet three, <laughs> not not very tall, um, and I was also very young. When I first started, I was in my early 30s when I first started teaching. And a lot of the students in my class were all, all some of them were older, some were around my age, some were maybe younger, maybe right, right out of right out of undergraduate, you know, right? Um, yeah, law school. I was, yeah. Right, like you were, right. Um, but but some of them were older. And, so, and, and, and I think there is a, an inclusiveness in Mississippi, you know, that, that tends to self-perpetuate. So if if you are within the the club, right, then then you have your own group of friends. And if you're not within that club, then you tend to be like the outsider. And so when I first started teaching and I I, I taught first year property, it was a large class. I think I had like something like 100, 100 students in that class, 100, close to 100. The very first class, I think I had 101 students. So it was a huge class, and and then there was this inclusiveness in in pockets around in, in within the class, who were not very open to someone who wasn't white male. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the typical impression of what a law professor should look like, you know, white male and authoritative, not someone who was you know young, uh, small, and and not American. So. It was a, a rough couple of years, and I remember having to take voice lessons to learn how to project my voice, having to do a lot of inner work to to know how to say no, right? I would I would have students coming to my class to my office after 
after exam time wanting me to change their grades. <laughs> so I, don't, I know about, I never had to do that myself, thank God. But uh-huh. I had my friends from my classes that would go meet with their professors right before the grades got turned in to try to help bump their grade up or what. Right. I, I do that myself, but I, I know but, that. But this was after they got their grade. They wanted me to change the grade after they got it. Like they, if they oh, got wow. a B, right, and they weren't happy with the B, then they wanted me to move it up to a to higher grade. So it was it was learning to to cope, especially when I was at that time I was alone and it was just me doing a lot of inner work to to build up confidence and and learning to say no and and drawing boundaries that I I never had to before. Oh and yeah and and I also remember being being Asian in in a, a predominantly white environment because a lot of the students were predominantly white and and we have a lot more diversity now than when I first start, started because the school actually made more conscious efforts to recruit uh, minority students, but at that time it was predominantly white. Students would whistle at me when I when I when I taught, you know, when I when I when I was teaching, and and not only was it distracting, you, you get a wealth of knowledge when you have different people from different backgrounds coming together, yeah. not just yeah. classes together, yeah. but in every yeah. way possible, right? Yeah, it was that was that was challenging to 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 be honest. What was the hardest part for you out of that whole experience? Was there like any example that you could point to that for you was like, man, this is difficult. I've had a really hard time with this. I know I'm going to overcome this. I'm resilient, but it was a challenge. Yeah, I I think it was really when I realized that I might not get tenure because of the way things were were turning out. And actually, it wasn't until... Yeah, and, and I was really thinking that yeah, this this is not going to work out. And I wasn't I was thinking of not staying. But then eventually I did meet my husband who is from Mississippi, who is not like someone who you know, who was insular for one for lack of a better word. I, I don't mean it in, in a pejorative way, um, pejorative way, but but um grounded you. Say that again grounded you <laughs> yeah he I feel like as you describe his energy you feel grounded he's like angry. yeah yeah he, he's been on right overcome he's adversity a... <laughs> he, right he he spent a lot of time in california so we had a lot of commonalities there but then he came back to mississippi for family so when when we met you're right he grounded me you know i felt i felt i feel it in your energy now as you talk about him yeah, I didn't I feel I feel like I didn't have to put up all these walls just to feel safe. You know, I've, and I think some, he, he likes to remind me of this, but I think he, he takes credit for me getting tenure <laughs> and stay and stay with the job. If you could just describe a little about the protections afforded to you as such as a tenure or how it changed your life in your own way. Yeah. So with with tenure, the the law school cannot terminate your position without without good cause. So you have to, you know, with before tenure, you're you're teaching on a on a year to year contract, and there there is no guarantee that that the school will give you a job the next year. But once you get tenure, then you cannot, the law school cannot terminate your position without good cause, meaning that, you know, unless you you commit a crime, you know, you sexually harass a colleague or a student, you're basically good security-wise. 
it gives um, faculty members a lot of security because you know you can basically write what you want to write about. You know, you could say about what you want in the, in the classroom. I mean, there will be student backlash and everything, and, and unless it's like like what I was saying, you know, some something that that borders on on criminal, right? You you basically cannot get terminated, and and there are law professors who say all kinds of things in the in the tenured law professors who say all kinds of things in the classroom, and you know, and they're fine, and so you know and but but there are other ways you know to say to just to to highlight that the issue we were talking about social justice and and norms earlier even though you may be tenured and the law school may not be able to terminate you legally sometimes when you when you kind of cross the line there are other norms as well right your your faculty may may turn their backs on you your students may you know decide not to take your class and and that's effective that's effective termination anyway right so the the check and balances are there, even though you get, even though you do have tenure, right? You you still want to be a productive member of the faculty, and you still want to teach your class as well, you know. Because sometimes social norms and and, and backlash from the public is, is a lot more severe than. That's than, true. Then the actual norms could happen because of your protections afforded under being tenured, and, exactly. and being tenured exists for other education. Like my mom was a teacher in a public yeah. school, and they gave the same type of protection after a certain period of time—three years and a day, I believe—you got to be on the job. And oh, you okay. get your tenure. It's it's really so for protections, I think, in the in the past, so that people wouldn't get prosecuted for their political views. Exactly. And exactly. it allows for a free flow and exchange of information. So I, I think it's a great idea. I want to ask you. So once you became a professor, how did you go from law school professor and your background with everything else you previously did as an attorney to now wanting you're now in this whole new area of what you're doing with the Change Maker Institute? I want you to talk about that because. It sounds fascinating. And I, I, it, it seems like it's, you had to go through some type of an awakening or some type of process to go from one point to the next point, even though you're still doing the other stuff. And that's what I like to share on the show because that's like very inspiring. Yeah. yeah. So, so when I was a law professor, I did, I did some consulting work um, on the side because you know my background in intellectual property. So I, I know think I'm very aware of things like branding and things like innovation and how to innovate, you know, and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about things like that. But I grew up Catholic. And so there is this, this idea that that we kind of have we kind of have like a social responsibility to kind of take care of the people around us, right? Beyond your immediate family. And so the, the real turning point, and I can I can actually pinpoint the turning point for me and, and why we have the Changemaker Institute today is I was at Mass, and at that time, we, we just had our daughter. She was she must have been about two. She's, she's six now, but she must have been about two at that time, two or three. And, you know, I was a new mom, and, and she was on the pew next to me climbing around. And we had a visiting priest who was doing a lot of social justice work in poorer parts of the world, Africa, particularly, particularly. And he gave a homily about, you know, and he, he didn't have any pictures. He didn't have any, any props or anything. It was, but, it, but he was a really good speaker, you know, and he was talking about how poor people were in some parts of the world that, that the place where we keep our pet in, in America is even is infinitely better than some of the places where they actually slept, you know, in, in their living space. And that and that struck with me. But the, the the one thing that actually, you know, we talk about an awakening, the one thing that he said that actually make made my heart 
rip apart was when he said, in some parts of the world, the men would take care of the fields and it was a huge responsibility because they would go out and bring the food back. You know, if they had grains, they would have more food. And sometimes because they were so poor, the, the family would have to ration out the food and they would give the, the food to the men first because they needed the energy to go out to the, to the fields. And the children and the women who were left behind, they would take what was left. And sometimes the mother would have to say, to, they would have to ration what was left. And sometimes the mother would have to say to, the, to their child that today is not your, your turn to eat. And he said, there has to be a world where a mother never has to say to their child that today is not your turn to eat. And I, I still want to cry when I hear that. But when he said, I feel like I just feel emotional when you say that. Like, yes. I know we're looking at each other through the camera right now, but I, I can try to put myself in that position of thinking in my head, like, how do you say that to your child? Or how are you as a child hearing that? Exactly. And this is supposed to be our world that we're in in 2021. Exactly. We have the ability to come up with vaccines and help people in different areas of our lives, right? Why can't we have a way to eradicate world hunger and help take our sharpest and most dedicated people of our society with the resources, put it all together? That's where you come in. Yeah. And, and when he said that, and I looked at my daughter, I, I just cannot bear the thought of having to if a mother to have to say that you know because i i would never be able to say that to to a child and and when there's no food you don't have any option when there's drought drought when there is a lack of clean water when i mean there's you, you don't have an option to say okay let's let's look somewhere else for food you know what you have is what you have and so so really, I, I like to say that the, the reason why we have the Changemaker Institute is because of my daughter, because I, I want her to grow up in a world where, where hunger isn't a problem, you know, not such a huge problem. And I, I want her to be able to, if she ever wants to go out to the Pacific and look at the, the blue whales, you know, they, they're still going to be there, you know, <laughs> We haven't brought our environment or our planet to such a to such a place where even even our our animals are gone, right? Yeah. And so that's that's really important to me, and 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 being able to to live a better world for our children. That's that's why we have a Changemaker Institute. So with the Changemaker Institute, we focus on for-profit business, and we work with them to help them be a force for good in the world. And, and the reason why we focus on, on for-profits is because for-profit businesses in our largely capitalistic market it can do a lot of good in places where government and nonprofits can't. You know, with, with businesses, you reach out in different places in society in a powerful source i mean corporate america is powerful it can do exactly. so much look what it's been doing since the george floyd thing with social justice yep. stuff look yep. at the positions it, it's influencing so many things in our society yeah exactly jason it makes me yeah. smile because i think of the fact that when corporate america as you said becomes a force for the for the world becomes a positive force it shakes all other parts of society yep. Right? exactly yep yeah, the, 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 the people that reacted most quickly to the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement were actually corporate America. I know. I remember. Much, much faster than government, much faster than nonprofits. And there is so much talk about diversity 
um, an impact that's happening right now. What, what we do at the Changemaker Institute is because with so much talk and with so much focus on impact, impact is actually really nebulous. You know, like what, what does impact mean, right? And so what we try to do with, with, with companies is teach them how to actually measure that impact. You know, we work with them on creating meaningful and measurable impact, but also make sure that that, that impact can be sustained. Can you give an example of that? Just so I can kind oh, of track my own are you, are you talking about metrics or are you talking about? Uh, I'll give you an example. Like if you have, I don't, without saying the company's name as a mm-hmm. client, let's say, hey, I had a company that wanted me to help them with their diversity or help them with their, their larger focus. Mm-hmm. And so I helped them create a measurable impact. And what they basically saw in a certain period of time was X. Mm-hmm. That's not with metrics, right? That's just an example, like an anecdote. I'm just curious out of curiosity. Yeah, I love the exactly. Like exactly. I find it fascinating and inspiring at the same time. It is, it is, right? So let's, <laughs> let's just say you have a client that says, okay, I want to focus on diversity. It's a huge issue to me. I want I want to, I see a lot of inequalities and a lot of inequities in society. And I want to address that by focusing on diversity, right? How do I do that? You're going to say, well, if you want to address diversity, you're going to have to think about, well, what are your activities, right? What kind of activities will you engage in to make sure that you achieve diversity, right? What kind of inputs will you have into moving diversity further? And then you want to make sure that the activities and the inputs are then connected to your outputs, your outcomes, and your impact. Because you want to show that, okay, by, for example, X, hiring more minority candidates, right? We are going to address diversity because the outcomes are going to be X, Right. So the X could be measurable positions. Right. We have we have, you know, 25 more uh, minority students. You can say, okay, well, we have 25 students, right, who are minorities and 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 therefore we've created our impact. But then you still you still need to think about the outcomes. Right? What what is the outcome? What happened to the 25 students? Are they what's their experience like? Is the experience tailored to them? Exactly, right? Exactly. Are they, you know, from from recruiting them? Are you providing them with the resources they need to succeed, right? Are they progressing beyond where they were when they came in, right? Are they, you know, and this, this we're talking about law schools, right? But it would work the same way for a client, right? You've you've recruited, you know, five minorities in on your on your track to let's just say partnership or you know the the C suite, right? What are you doing to get them there, right? What's the outcome? Right. And really, are you making an impact? Right. Are you are you making an impact by just hiring five people? Right. And you need to you need to connect the activity with ultimately the impact because you need to have measures to show that the recruit the recruitment actually created an impact. You know, so those 25 students that came into law school, did they pass the bar? Once they passed the bar, what are they doing? Hiring jobs and what kind of opportunities exist for them in the local community. Exactly. Exactly. What did you do for them along their journey in the three years that they were in law school? Did you help them get on law review? Did you put them in the ambassador program, right? What, what programs did you have that, that made it possible for them to then succeed? Right. Because a lot of minorities come into a position with a lot of, with a lot of backlog anyway. You know, a lot of there are a lot of systemic barriers to them succeeding in the first place. And we need to address those systemic barriers as well. Right. And so and so it's it's not only 
it's not only important that we think about impact not just as paying lip service to issues like diversity you know yeah it's a good thing we need to have more diversity right it's really what are you doing intentionally to create that impact right which is why sometimes data sources are really important because the data sources help you see the impact that you're making you know what i mean i think of heart yeah i've been holding this the whole time we're talking about this stuff (laughs) The human heart and the compassion and the yeah. empathy are so important here. Yeah. It's important for an administration of a university, for example, to have compassion. Absolutely, Jason. Yeah. Or the CEO of a company to start incorporating policies from the top down. Exactly. Compassionate and empathetic and caring and helping people who adjust to new environments. Or I, I agree with exactly when you're talking about these different standards for students. I was thinking back to when I was at Georgetown, even there's a, there was diversity there for the university. It's a Jesuit school, amazing uh-huh. university, steeped in tradition in DC. And I loved it. I was only there a year, but I will say that they recruited actively from multiple countries. And I, I feel like any institution of higher learning has that helps to contribute to an overall positive experience for everybody involved, student, faculty, administrator, whatever. I agree. Looking in terms of corporate America itself, Mm -hmm. what has been your greatest moment having corporate America as your client and, and working with your institute to try to create measurable change or impacts in society? Yeah, I I think it's, it's pivoting corporate America to actually think of, social impact as a a necessary thing, you know? So with corporate America, the traditional focus has always been on stakeholder wealth maximization, right? What, how can we make as much profits as we can so that we can transfer their wealth back to our our shareholders? The the most interesting thing about corporate America is in 2018, there was a round table of the top corporate leaders in America where you see a mindset shift from shareholder wealth maximization to we need to take we need to take care of our stakeholders, right? So who are who are corporate America's stakeholders? It's not just the shareholders; it's going to be the the workers, right? The employees. Who are they hiring? Right? How are they taking care of the employees? How are they engaging their employees? Right? Who are their suppliers? Right? What kind of suppliers are they using? Are they using a sweatshop in Bangladesh to 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 get the apparels? Right? Or are they being very careful about the the people that they work with, right? If they're using a sweatshop, are they taking steps to make things better for people there, right? So suppliers would be one. The, the your distributors, who are you using as your distributors, right? And and also the last two would be your environment and your customer. How are you treating your customer, right? Do they just buy your product and then? Too bad what happens after that? Or do you actually have a program that when it, when they've come to the end of the product's life, right? You have a, a system where you can actually, or a process where they can actually return the product to you and you can recycle it, right? Most of us throw products into the trash that ends up in the ocean at the end of the, the product life cycle. Not right? recycled or reused. Yeah. Right, exactly. And the, the last one, uh, Jason, is the environment. This, your stakeholder should also be the environment, right? Especially if you actually, especially if you have physical products, you know, maybe with digital products, it's it's less oppressing. But with with physical products, you really need to think about the environment, right? In terms of how you package it and how you distribute it and how you eventually dispose of it. What kind of footprint are we leaving on a daily basis and on you know beyond that in terms of carbon footprints and all the other aspects of it? 
I align hundred percent of the stuff you're talking about right here. Like I, this is the stuff I want on my show, by the way, I want us to talk about the environment. I want us to talk about how we can change our ways of looking at things regarding our relationship to the planet. And like, these are things I, 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 I just know it needs to be discussed and awareness needs to be raised. It has to be. I mean, it's too important. We're at a, we're at a road right now. I think we're past a certain point and we have to take corrective action immediately. Exactly. And it's not a it's not a problem that we should leave to the academics to figure out because academics are just going to write more books and more books. Right. It's not a problem that we can leave to the government to solve because this, the government, number one, has two other pressing issues. Right. The priorities may not be you know, solving hunger. It may be, you know, national defense. Right. At, at any point in time. Right. So so the priority may not be there and individuals, they lack momentum and the what do you call yeah. it the yeah to, to be able to address poverty the, you know the 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 mass right but businesses can right? well, let's say one nerdy thing for a minute and i'm gonna nerd out for a minute i don't do this too often on my show i gotta do okay. this with you i think of the un and i was raised in the classical you know during the 1990s for college and law school early 2000s to rely on international institutions that's why i got my lm in international law I believe yeah. in governmental organizations like the UN and NGOs and the interplay of international human rights organizations and every other one of these aspects of it. And I have a lot of faith in all that. I know, unfortunately, during the Trump years, we saw an erosion in confidence, an erosion of trust. And I, I definitely think that there's still so much opportunity there in our international institutions to work with corporate America, to work with individuals like yourself. And various other change maker institutes and other ways and capacities that you may know with other people you align with to do a lot. And I want to ask you, have you had any interaction with the UN or, or governmental organizations as such working with corporate America as well? Because there's a lot of partnerships that I believe form as well. Yeah, Jason, I, I, I love that you brought that up. So, so the United Nations, they it's it's they are an important um, part of the component to, you know, a large part of the the component in creating social impact. So there is the sustainable development goals that the UN identified as, you know, 17 goals that we need to address in order to make the world better by 2030, right? And the 17 goals ranging from no poverty to, as I say earlier, partnership between government, business, and international organizations to address these goals, right? So poverty, you're right. Like a business can address poverty to some extent, but without without mobilizing the government and without having international organizations that could help you distribute your solution, right? Your, your impact is going to be limited, right? So, so you're right. It, it's really a partnership between the different stakeholders in the issue. So with, with the United Nations, those 17 goals, it's clear, and they've actually identified metrics under each one, right? So those, those metrics are very high level. Like we, we need to address you know, for health, let's just say, we need to address malaria, right? By 2030, we need to reduce the, 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 the number of people that are getting affected, infected by malaria, right? And that's a high level goal, right? But what can you do as a business? You now that you have the framework that the UN has provided you, well, what can you do as a individual business to reduce malaria, right? You can approach it from a health care perspective, or you could approach it as simple as we're going to build more mosquito mosquito nets and distribute it, uh, you know, the, to the places that that are that have a propensity to for people to get malaria. 
That's an interesting dynamic when you think about the interplay. I was thinking of assembly line. You got to put together these big pieces yeah. of the puzzle, government, corporations, and then individual NGOs and, and thought thought makers, change makers like yourself, visionaries. And it has to be an alignment of all these various factors working together to help distribute products or help. I was, I was seeing like an assembly line and it's not just one aspect of it. It's got to all work in unison. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you know what? When when things work in unison, you actually achieve a lot of uh, the impact is actually more meaningful and and um, powerful, right? So earlier we were talking about what if what how what do we do with empty space, right? So you have a let's just say a company or a or an organization that has empty space because now more and more people are working from home, so there's a lot of space, right? Now, unless they partner with someone who knows how to grow, let's just say, food in, indoors, right? Or they partner with a, a shelter that needs space, right? That space will go unused. Maybe they can rent it out, maybe, right? But but if they if they focus on impact, then it's it's working with all these different partners to come together to figure out what how do we make the best use of the space, right? And then once you, let's just say, we're going to, to use it to grow vegetables so that we can feed the poor in our community, the next question is, well, how do we distribute it to them, right? What do we do with, with the, the vegetables? Do we give it to them fresh? Do we pack, it, pack them up, right? Do we, you know, how do we get it to them? You're right. It's a collaborative effort, right? It's never a, a solo, you know, endeavor. I want to ask you a question I was thinking of just now. The pandemic, how has it impacted your ability with your institute to work with partners or in general just to navigate <laughs> through the world right now as your institute? Like I know with the pandemic, a lot of things have frozen, shut down. They've been challenged, you know, even with remote work, there's still challenges, you know, yeah. mental health problems. <laughs> People have to, I, I'm not saying you, but I'm saying for me, even being home all the time, I got to get outside and get a walk around nature a couple times a day, just get my head outside. And yeah. I did that this morning. I got to go walk for coffee and I'm in Florida and in October, it's actually finally getting under 90 degrees. So I can go outside and feel the cooler air in the morning. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I call it nature therapy Yeah, <laughs> for me right now, because being inside too much can be detrimental, but we're, you know, we still have to get through this, this stuff. But I'll ask you like, for you, how's it been? For me personally, um, it, it, it's been, it was rough initially when we had to pivot really quickly and work from home. So it, it was, it was pretty hard. And I, I, I really appreciate the mental health issue. So we have, you know, we have a, a daughter who was away from school and she's been away. She was away last year when the pandemic first hit. And then recently she was home for two weeks and then she went back to school for for a week and then she was at home for another two weeks because she was in quarantine so that's traumatizing so, i know right and she even was, if you don't get covid it's traumatizing exactly why can i not go back to school i said well because because she threw up one day and then the doctor said well she needs to be quarantined for another two for another two weeks so we kept her home and then before that my my husband did actually test positive for covid so when he tested positive the whole house all of us were in quarantine so I know what you mean by the mental health. It's it's it really does take a toll, you know, especially when you are you, you have a lot of work to do and you still need to do the work, right? But you're at home. 
so I can I can really appreciate the mental. So it, that has been challenging. It's hard. You, you know what? I, I if I can incorporate mental health awareness on my shows yeah. from now on, I, I admit that I've gone through my own depression, anxiety in my life, yeah. and I'm not ashamed of it. I feel like it's like somebody saying they have a, a scrape on their elbow. You can visibly see. Well, mental health, you can't see it. It's exactly. under the surface, but it's exactly. it's still presented. It's still presentable, presented. And so, from my vantage point, when I can talk about it and say, you know what? If I have friends tell me that they're going to therapy. I like applaud them. I'm like, you know what? That's like you telling me you just signed up for a gym membership and you're, you got a, a personal trainer training your body because therapy is like training your mind. It's working through issues. And mm-hmm. I've gone through therapy in my life. I think I would encourage anyone who has any kind of things that they're going through to go through therapy. It can help you with a lot of things in your life. I, I, I do agree. So the, the one thing about therapy that I, I mean, I've attended, I've gone for therapy as well. It doesn't have to be at a point where everything is unraveling. Exactly. It could be at any moment, at any moment. You can have the extra time mm-hmm. in your life. You decide, you know what? I want to concentrate on me a little bit. I yeah. can nurturing your inner child in a way with mental yeah. health. Exactly. Because there's a lot that I did during the pandemic from my couch in the other side of this <laughs> camera where I, I was able to forgive my dad, my grandmother, yeah. other family members I need not talk about or friends or loved ones and go through all this like, revisiting things, but releasing and letting go. And I've had my own yeah. surrender that, and, and it gave me the ability to like lessen up a lot of the burdens I put on myself internally. So in that respect, mental health wise, it was a lot of good. It's, yeah. it's still like even staying in a lot or being isolated a lot or not being a social, yeah. <laughs> it takes a toll on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That we'll probably just know about in years to come from now, once we <laughs> kind of get through. Exactly. That. Right. The PTSD and all that. Right. You're right. And and I like the I like that call to action to your audience, Jason. That that sometimes we need to put a pause on things, right? So mindset sura actually means a mental pause that you need to actually stop what whatever you're doing, and and focus on calming the mind down. You know what I mean? Because our minds are constantly trying to process things over and over again, and we are we are overstimulated. Listen, you know, there's so much stimuli out there. And COVID is just an additional stimuli above everything that we are dealing with. I mean, can I just stop that for one second? Because I love what you said. COVID is just one other stimuli that we're dealing with. But you realize it's on every level of our lives. Like I go from calling my bank and hearing about COVID to being on social media, hearing about COVID to getting my third booster shot the other day with COVID to coming home and putting on commercials on TV where they're telling you to get vaccinated or you'll have one friend or so that doesn't believe in vaccinations, bringing up some opinion on Twitter. It's like everywhere in our society, every part of our being right now. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Think about that. When you really absorb what our times are like right now, we've never had moments like that in history that I'm aware no. of that's been recorded no. history. No, and with the addition of uh, media and social media, right? That's that's only tenfolded. I mean, it's it just made things a lot more. It, it just permeated every part. What was traditionally been private, right? Like in the privacy of your home, you would be dealing with all these things. Now, now, because of social media, even that information is coming into the privacy of your of your home. How about the polarization? There's yep. polarization about wearing masks. There's yep. polarization polarization about getting your vaccine. Yep. Polarization. I, I'm just like thinking to myself as I as I really 
focus on that aspect of things. My birds get upset in the other rooms when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> it, it's like trying to understand the big picture. How in history, when we look back at this period of time, is it going to be like McCarthyism, where we kind of scratch our heads and say, how did the public act that way? How yeah. are they so chastising? Is it going to be like that 20 years from now, people look back at this era and say, how did we fight over masks? How do we fight over vaccines when 700,000 people died at the blink of an eye in a year and a half? Yeah, what what were they thinking? And it shows you the depths and challenges of the human spirit in both directions. Yeah. And we have this polarization. I mean, it is what it is. But I want to ask you, in light of everything that you've experienced, where do you see your role with the Changemaker Institute in the future, the near future and the further future for your vision of accomplishing your goals? Yeah, so we, our, our goal really is to, our, our mission is to change the world, one entrepreneur and one business at a time by giving them the tools that will help them position their business as a, as a social impact business, trying to be a force for good in the world. So that, that ultimately is our mission. We would, if there are large companies that have traditionally not thought about the social impact, like Chanel, for example, they're they're actually thinking about social impact at this point, right? But like companies like Hewlett Packard, they can do so much good. Companies like Apple, right? They can do so much good. And not that they aren't, they already are. But if if they can actually have a social impact program, that would be awesome, you know, to actually think about, about impact in a systematic way. Excellent. And in terms of how our audience can find you. Can you share your information so our audience, if they want to go out and check out your information more or reach out to you directly, like where would they go? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, go to our website, www.changemakerinstitute.org. And you can find a lot of information about that. There is a social impact readiness assessment that you can take to kind of figure out, you know, where are you on the spectrum of creating social impact? You can connect with us where we have our regular we call it the Changemaker Commons, where we bring together all our stakeholders and meet every week to talk about social impact matters and, and kind of network for the collaboration that we were talking about earlier. So join us there. And then we also have a newsletter that we send out occasionally. So there are plenty of ways to connect with us. We also have a Changemaker community that you can you can join. So everything that you, you need to to know to get in touch with us is www.changemakerinstitute.org and, and everything that you need to know is there. With the work you're doing, the impact you're leading and the things you're really doing, what you represent, I align with you guys. And I'm so excited that you were able to share this information with our show today. And just your personal story is very inspiring. And I think speaks accolades to the, the resiliency of the human spirit and the American soul. Like I call it the American soul because you're an American just like me. Yes. And that's the richness of our country. That's the future potential of our country. That's the country we live in that I cherish and, and love more than anything as being a lawyer here is the, the ability of somebody coming from another country and making their life an impact here in such a way. And look what you're doing in your lifetime. You know, we're not here that many years on this planet before we, we go on to our spiritual existence. But the stuff that you've accomplished and the stuff that you're doing is just making me so proud to be able to talk to you today. And I, I really appreciate it. So I, I thank, thank you, Jason. It, it was a pleasure. It really was. I'm so glad we connected as well. I just want to thank Alina for coming on the show today and talking about the various topics with social justice and just her personal experience of resiliency, as I was talking about a few minutes ago with her directly. I think it's very special and it's powerful when you can look at adversity and challenges in life that are presented to you, even in higher education. 
And I witnessed some of those challenges being a white male, but still attending schools in Florida and in DC, older institutions of higher learning. Everybody has their norms. They have their things that they do. You, you heard us talk about how they pick tenure professors for schools. It reminded me of when I, when I was recruited to join a, a fraternity organization in college. It, it's, it's kind of funny. Some of it's silly to me, but some of it makes sense. I understand parts of it. But the other bigger parts of it, the bigger pieces, when you look at what Alina's doing now with the Changemaker Institute, helping to craft ways to help corporate America make the world a better place, doing good for the world, looking at social impact as one of the things that are strategies for a corporation to flourish in our country and in our global competitive world right now, huge things. We need to take on global warming, the environment. We need to take on racial justice. We need to make changes in our society, restructure things so that things are permanently and successfully positively impacted in the right direction. We're headed there, but we still have threats to that. And I don't mean to get political with anyone. I'm just saying in general, the human spirit deserves better. So for those of you that are doing good things like Alina, I applaud you and I congratulate you. We've got to challenge ourselves as a society to move society in these directions. So that's why I'm happy to have Alina on the show today and the conversations we're able to share with each of you. Check out her information. I'm going to have the contact information for Alina in the show notes. And thank you for supporting this episode as well. And stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible. I did want to let everybody know that I have a backlog of some interviews that I'm going to be getting out in the next few weeks. I'm also producing two other shows at this point, Psychic Visions with myself and Megan Kane, and a third show called Let's Recognize Our Best for Mentorship. So you'll see that coming out as well, as well as more episodes here as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. 
Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid. 